Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by multi-award-winning writer and author of the best-selling book, Sprache und Sein, that's the German title, which translates as Speaking and Being, which is published this month, that's May 2022, for those of you catching up. Kubra Gumushay is founder of several award-winning campaigns and organizations, and in 2018, Forbes magazine selected her as one of the 30 under 30 here in Europe. She's also a Mercator Senior Fellow at CRASH, that's an acronym, and at the CFI at Cambridge University. Kubla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much, Miriam, for having me. Um, also, we go we go back. Probably should the big reveal. We uh, we've known each other for many years, so um, I am very excited to see that you've published this book because you have always had such an interesting perspective, and this book really is a revelation in terms of bringing out so many of the ways in which you see the world, uh, but also making space for how other people see the world, which I thought was very beautiful. Um, I guess maybe the first question, whenever people write a book, because I feel like there's one in me somewhere, um, I'm always like, why did you want to write this book? Because we probably all have like a whole load of books we could write. Why this one? Actually, I first wanted to write about silence, uh, the continuity of silencing. Um, I wanted to write about how the first generation of Turkish immigrants in Germany were considered to be silent because they did not speak the language. The second spoke the language, but were not close enough to the microphones. And then the third generation spoke the language, spoke into the microphones, but still were silent because of the topics they were supposed to speak on, those were limited, the roles they've had while speaking were limited. And I wanted to highlight the continuity of silence and silencing. And then I thought to myself while I was writing it, how absurd, how cynical, if I were to write about silence and silencing, if I had the opportunity to speak. So then I decided to have write in a way that would be performative, where I would have the audacity to speak and be curious and wonder rather than speak from the role of the um, the, the, the one who's scrutinized, the one who's objectified. And to me, it was sort of, um, that was one obstacle I've had, one performative action I wanted to take with a book. And the other one was born out of years of frustration with a public discourse where I had been really engaged in and you know I started really young around like 15 16 and then more publicly around 18 19 and I always naively thought that the grown-ups had some form of idea what they were doing and slowly dawned upon me that they have no idea and that all of Terrifying. these yeah and all these political debates and 
these discourses we were having were just spectacles and you were incentivized to behave in a certain way, speak in a certain way, and there was no progress in the discussions that I could at least see. So I grew really frustrated with that. And instead of offering yet another smart argument for a stupid discussion, I wanted to understand why is it that we speak in such a destructive manner? Why is it that um, we don't seem to be able to put into our resources into more productive discussions about what there is? So I decided to dig as deep as possible and until I would um, hit something hard enough to work on. And to me, that structure was the structure of our language, the architecture of our language. And this is how the book came about. Mm. And so for, for our listeners who are wondering a little bit about your subjectivity, your background, how did you, you know, you've got a particular unique perspective on the world. Tell me, you grew up, you're born and raised in Germany. Yes, I was, I was born and raised in Germany, in Hamburg, in the north of Germany, as uh, the grandchild of uh, classical. In, Tur in, in German, they use the word Gastarbeiter, which roughly translate, translates into uh, guest worker. And so my grandpa was one of those immigrants who came to work and were destined to return. And that never happened uh, with millions of, of guest work, so-called guest workers. And... Um, yeah, this is where I grew up. And then I studied political sciences. And then I went to London to do some internships. This is where I met you around 13, 14, 15 years ago. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that's a, really a scary thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and tell us a little bit about, for people who might not be familiar with the German context, because, and particularly, you know, when you say guest worker, uh, you know, I'm French, I think immediately to like the way that North African uh, migrants were treated in the post-war era as basically commodities used to rebuild Europe, in this case, France, with the sort of housing that was never anticipated to kind of welcome families. Eventually, there was post-war reunification for the lucky ones. Um, and, you know, a lot of the problems that we have today in terms of really poor housing, the geography of cities and people's marginalization, literally geographically, other problems related to, uh, you know, uh, two tier systems can actually be traced back in many ways to that era. Um, and I'm just wondering for people who are not familiar with sort of the, the Turkish community or the, the history of the Turkish community in Germany, could, are you able to maybe say a few words about that community? Which is diverse, I'm sure. Yeah, but almost exactly the same as to what you have told about uh, um, the situation in France. It's very, very, very similar, I would say. Uh, 60s, 70s, post-war era, all of these um, predominantly men, but also women, were brought in from um, not only Turkey, also Italy, some North African countries, but um, um, I would say that at this point, the Turkish um immigrants were sort of you know there were greek and and italians before but they were then less bad quote unquote than uh turkish immigrants who then sort of were down in the ladder of those who are you know being discriminated against and um and to this day you can see the relics of that time where um, there's this really famous quote by, um, I think it was uh, Max Frisch who said, we called workers um, and yet humans came. And wow. he beautifully 
with those two sentences really puts um, um, summarizes the whole problem that um, uh, this whole development brought with itself by not designing a society around humans but around workers who were just supposed to be workers and to this day you can see the relics of that time and um, yeah I would say very similar to France. And so when it comes to uh, things like we, we think of uh, post-war Germany, this is post-Second World War, this is the former heart of Nazi Europe, um, and there's a reckoning, right, in the, the post-war era with race science, with this, this ideology that took root so profoundly and led to the murder of millions of people. Um, has that led to a... Um, you know, some might say, well, Germany today is, is the country that's done the most introspection when it comes to examining its legacy of race and racism. Is that a statement you would agree with? They have done a lot of work on that. But what I would say is, like with the many Western countries, their constitutions don't describe social reality, but always um, an ideal that they strive towards. So when the German found, um, uh, constitution was written 70 years, more than 70 years ago, it did not describe a social reality. But yet today we live in a time where people think this is who they are. This is the description of reality. And anyone who points out that we're not there yet somehow diminishes that achievement. So I see uh, and I see this in many Western countries. I see this um in, in many democracies where there's a huge gap between the illusion of what they perceive their societies to be and social reality. And anyone who points out that there is a vast gap, there, there is a void, um, is, is considered to be disturbing or um, being pessimistic and has to do lots of work into just proving that there is a void rather than um, living in a culture and society, which also would be a possibility, right, where you com communally think about how to achieve and strive towards that kind of society. So in Germany, when you um, racism for a long time was just considered to be what um, uh, neo-Nazis did, those who identified as neo-Nazis. But what happened in your daily lives, in the center of society, in uh, uh, educational institutions, in um, at, you know, you know, the waiting room and the doctor's uh, 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 office, all of these things were not considered to be racism. And I would say this has changed over the last couple of years, where there is a now great understanding that racism does not equal neo-Nazis, but that there is structural racism that excludes people, marginalizes people, even if those who do marginalize don't do so with those intentions. And this, I think, is a huge progress. But we, the, the next step sort of that needs to happen is to learn how to be a society that continuously learns, continuously improves, and doesn't sort of just wait to achieve something that then to rest on it. Uh, uh, and then again, fall into the trap of living in the illusion of being rather than understanding that it's always something we strive towards. Mm, yeah, not assuming. I think France does this really uh well to you know 
I mean that sort of ironically, obviously, in this context of, of thinking, well, we are the bastion of human rights, so there can't possibly be a human rights infringement. There can only be a debate over, you know, a difference of opinion over this as opposed to a reality, because we are that thing we proclaim to be. Um, I wanted to ask you about racism in Germany and well, what, you know, is that something that you personally experienced and experience? Yeah, I mean, you know, what you do is you, when you learn about racism, you then, in hindsight, understand the many forms of racism you've been subjected to. But at the time, you don't know the words, you don't know what to categorize this as. But I'm a post 9-11 generation child. I grew up with people who looked like me being criminalized, uh, demonized. And I was sort of robbed of my teenagehood because I was 13 when it happened. And all of a sudden, I like unable uh, as a 13 year old child, I wasn't allowed to wonder or like do other things that teenagers do. I had to represent entire countries and entire world religion and somehow had to answer all these questions that, that adults were asking me on the street, on, in school and elsewhere. And I felt this responsibility to respond to this because why would they ask me if I uh, uh, weren't supposed to have an answer for this? Mm. So I grew into this role of having to um, not be myself, but be a representative of. And then what also happened in that time is that I observed the debates we were having in the public and I saw the real life impact of it. And then I slowly grew into the public discourse as someone who was trying, because I lived again with the illusion of if someone said the right thing, maybe it would stop. And so this is how I enter it. And then and then when I enter it, the public discourse realize uh, it's a game. They know very well that it causes harm. They just don't want to uh, think about it. And, you know, I would be in those debates where they would say horrible things, dehumanizing things. And after the debate, they'd be like, oh, don't take it too seriously. And I could not not take it seriously because I knew the real life impact of that. Mm. Sorry, there's a sound with the sound. No, 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 go for it, yeah. Um, and and then I, you know, only in hindsight, I then could see how all of this fits into um, racism and um, racist structures. But my entry point was through uh, the specific racism you experience when you, um, when you look like you come from a Muslim country, quote unquote. And, and this, is my, this was my entry point. So two questions for me off the back of that, I suppose. One is the contentious in some circles, is Islamophobia a form of racism? Um, and I guess connected to that is for those people who can't see Kubra, uh, you know, Kubra would look or I'm sure would probably be classified as white. I mean, would you what box do you tick when we are required to do these exercises? If in Germany, you never ask this question, um, uh, but I would not identify as white, not in the context that I've been living in here in the UK and in Germany. But yeah, I think it would change, you know, depending on what kind of country you're in. Um, but uh, I would say off colour. Um, 
And, um, but to answer your first question, what was it again? I forgot. Uh, oh yeah, Islamophobia and anti-Islamism. They're kind of connected in a way, because I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, you know, sometimes when we think about racism, people get caught in sort of quite binary assumptions that it's sort of white people or people who might be perceived as white and then people who are perceived as brown or black. But actually, the more you travel through the world, and, you know, I think you're kind of a really classic example of this, is that you might be thought of as white by some people, but you're definitely not moving through the world as a white person. Yeah, so, um, like I said earlier, I, I would say, uh, within the context of that, I often, there's an echo. There was a slight echo, but let's let's hope it's gone That's now. Different. Yeah. Um, so within the context that where I, is there still an echo? No? Oh, I couldn't hear it then, but um, okay. yes. Okay. I'll start again. Um, but within the context where, within, within the context where I live and just work in and act in and live in, I would say I wouldn't um, categorize myself as white, but in other contexts I would, um, really depends on the context. And I think it's, um, a lot to do with your consciousness of how privileges change from, you know, based on what kind of context you you act in. And I'm very well aware of, you know, things moving and shifting and that there are hierarchies within marginalized groups, um, within different ethnicities. Uh, I mean, you know, as someone who whose ancestry comes, you know, from Turkey, you know, it would be very different if I were a Kurdish person or a Kurdish LV person. Um, the the discrimination, the marginalization and oppression um, those people receive within Turkish communities uh, is, um, is, is something that is very relevant to this day, not only in Turkey, but also in the West, in, in the diaspora, quote unquote. Um, but to the, the first question on Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism, it's interesting. I noticed, um, and I and I don't know. I don't know why this. Maybe you can explain why in the UK the word Islamophobia is more widespread than I hear. Very few people use the term anti-Muslim racism, but in Germany it's predominantly that word. And uh, one of the reasons I would say Islamophobia is not as much used as it used to be is because phobias considered to be like something you're scared of and it's like diminishing um, or, or like naturalizing I would say uh, or, or making it look like a, like an illness rather than a structural form of oppression mm -hmm. um, so it's like belittling that 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 problem um, and then and then the other reason why anti-muslim racism I would say is very widely used is because one, there's an understand. There's more resources, more knowledge being produced around racism, so that's something you can build on. And secondly, um, it is because a lot of people who don't identify as Muslim will still experience um, oppression, marginalization, discrimination because they're being perceived as being Muslim. Mm. So because of this. In Germany, anti-Muslim racism is quite widely used, and I use it to, um, albeit I'm quite aware of the fact that uh, if you are a practicing Muslim, um, 
there's a different form of oppression and marginalization you experience within society because you're being excluded in additional other ways say because you don't drink alcohol you don't you know your habitus is different and uh, and maybe also you're being ridiculed because you are someone who does believe um in something higher and and sort of leave the secular um uh, narration of the world um in certain contexts so so that i think does not anti-muslim racism does not adequately address that part but uh, it's widely used and 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 i think it really helps to understand how racialization happens because eventually it's a construct and every time someone says oh anti-muslim racism you know islam is not a race the joke is there is no race there are no races it's 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 human made construction of the world and that's the quote unquote joke right so um it, i think that's why anti-muslim racism can be really helpful in as in um as a way to explain why that's so absurd yeah, yeah. i feel like i, feel I, like had, I had a, had a, a real, real personal, personal experience, experience of that, of that. um, um myself, myself echoed back to me which is probably not pleasant for anyone hearing me twice but um uh you know in it when i wore a headscarf i was frequently racialized as non-european non-white um and it was interesting to me that you know my skin tone did not provide as as much of a uh, barrier to the racism that I was seeing <laughs> around me, but I uh, suddenly realized that there was a, a perception I shifted into a different category of being, which was the outgroup, you know. And once you become identified as part of the outgroup, there's a whole different set of norms and rules that apply. Um, there is no presumption of innocence. Um, there is an, uh, a requirement of justification owed to to those who get to define and dictate the terms. Uh, and as someone who was moving between the two, it was very confusing <laughs> because I was thinking, how 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 one minute am I being treated as an equal, and the next minute you're treating me like I have to answer to you? A bit like what you were saying about the post 9/11 era, where both you and I were wearing headscarves around that period and having to answer all kinds of crazy questions um, because we were being held to account for other people's actions. Actually, is what it really was. Um, but I, I wanted to to touch on something you talk about in the book and in, in Germany and because we're, we're talking a lot about language and obviously the book is all around language and you mentioned um, and I've forgotten his name, forgive me, um, a German uh, Jewish writer who I believe says, you know, um, basically Germany did this reckoning but it never looked inside the language and the language continues to carry some of the very problems that were at the root of what you know this the the holocaust and subsequent problems i think probably up until this day can you tell us a bit about that particular story and and how language does that so this was george steiner who 
now can you hear myself as well? Okay. Uh, so this was George Steiner who um, describes Germany in the 60s post-war and he says he can see the relics of that era still everywhere because it's in the language. And there were a lot of linguists who were describing how language changed before the Holocaust. And they could see how it was building up in the language. They were you know, no noticing the differences in how certain people were framed and the dehumanization that enabled um, the atrocities. I mean, a lot of things have to happen for two humans to stand in front of each other, not recognize each other and to feel legitimized to murder someone, take away their life or oppress them or anything less bad than, than murdering someone. But still, it it is born in the um, in, in a mindset that dehumanizes another person to the point you don't recognize them anymore. And so um, there was a lot of research done around that. And George Steiner looked at how after the Holocaust, it still persisted, how it was still there in the language. And he says, everything forgets, but not language. And he did, he did not say that the German language in and of itself was destined to do, you know, he wasn't making any theories about that. He was, he was showing that the la also on the la level of language, you need to address what, had ha what has happened. And this actually did happen. So to this day, there are certain words that are not being used in the current German political discourse because they are words of that time. And you can see how right-wing politicians are now slowly, you know, um, bringing these words into the discourse again. And this causes a lot of uproar, but unfortunately, sometimes people just get used to hearing it. And then without intentionally choosing to do that, might still use it because they become accustomed to it. So that definitely did happen. But I would say um, there's still a lot of work to be done because to this day, language is forms to dehumanize an entire group of people. Uh, if, if I, I love using language as, um, as a sample to analyze what's happening in our society because um, it shows that, you know, oftentimes people take things really personally and it really gets in your way of having a productive discussion about what's happening. And if you look at the architecture, of, of our societies, whether it's law, whether it's customs, you know, all of these different things that uh, constitute our society. It's so abstract that most people don't even know how to talk about it. And I feel language is something that is accessible to, uh, and easy to understand to most people. And when you then, and this is why I built the book the way I did, I first travel into other um, um, languages, so into other oceans and rivers and ponds and seas, and then I return to more familiar languages because then people know it could be different. And then you look at you look into the language and and try and see how what kind of perspective you take onto the world by using certain words, or how if you look at the language of the Potawatomi, um, how if you were to speak a language where 
just because of your grandma, you're encouraged and incentivized to take on the perspective of plants and trees and water and mountains and all of these other living creatures around us, how you would perceive the world differently just because of this grammar. And then, and then ask and wonder, so what kind of perspective am I incentivized to take within the language I grew up in, uh, within the language I consider the water around me that I don't even notice that I swim and live and breathe in. And so um, I find language um, can be really helpful to show structural elements of the way we perceive the world. And, and he did that to show, and, and it always helps me to also think of language like a building. And, and I mean, we all do work on language, right? We move through language and, and sometimes um, these, these buildings are huge and vast and they cover so many things that you don't ever need to leave that building. You live in this building, right? And, and when, you, when you think of it as a material building, you then also understand that um, sometimes the, these buildings need to be opened up. Sometimes you need to unlock closed doors and sometimes you need to um, tear down walls to allow for, for people to exist in this building. Because some people in our respective societies cannot be in the languages they write and live in um, they're, because they're not destined to speak but are supposed to be spoken about. And and I and I feel that talking about language as as a building helps helps to talk about this abstract thing that surrounds us and come up with constructive things we could actually do to change it. So if if languages are kind of buildings that are you know uh, architecturally designed with. Um, uh, you know, like any architect, there'll be some kind of ethos, philosophy, driving uh, ideas, and that certain languages, certain cultures appear to have forged um, pretty distinct ideologies, let's say, of, of human hierarchy uh, in particular. Do we need, you know, a linguistic reckoning? Or is it the case that uh, you know, in, in recognising the plurality of worldviews contained within alternative and different languages that we can uh, have that reckoning, essentially, that that itself could be the reckoning. Um, but, are there, you know, are we then asking people to learn multiple languages and, and is that feasible? I mean, it helps to speak other languages. Uh, I think there was this quote by Tanisa Coates that I put in the book. He said, I think something along the lines of learning another language is like coming to the realization that life exists outside <laughs> your own language. And, yeah. um, you know, it puts things into perspective. And it also, I think, enables people for to understand that things don't have to be the way they are. And that they've always been changing and are supposed to change in the future as well. And it's in our hands to actually be part of those who shift it and change it into a direction that comes closer to our ideals. So um, yes, it can help to speak other languages, but I think what is, um, so one of the uh, analogies I use in, in this book is this analo analogy of the Museum of Language. So should, should I quickly describe what this is? Please do, yeah. 
So the Museum of Language is an invitation to um, imagine language like a place, like a huge museum. And in this mu museum, you will find things of the past, the present, the future, faraway places, near places, fictional lives, real lives. You will find different colors and ideas and ideologies, different smells, different uh, stories. And all of these things are curated in this Museum of Language. You can move through this Museum of Language, spend your entire life without ever leaving the Museum of Language and you can travel through time and space. And in this Museum of Language, there are two types of people. The first type, those are the unlabeled. Those are people who fit the norm to, the, to a degree that they don't need to have a category, they don't need to be named, they don't need to be labeled. And those people can freely walk through this Museum of Language and explore the world and do all of the things I just mentioned. And they never wonder though why there is a void, why a certain word is missing. They never run against the walls of this Museum of Language. They never um, um, question the definitions that are adhered to each um, of, of those categories. And this is not a coincidence because this Museum of Language is curated by also unlabeled people. So people who are so much like them that they don't even notice that they're watching the world through someone else's eyes. Those curators decide what comes in, what doesn't, what is, uh, what stands next to what, what does get, uh, what kind of labels things get, what kind of definitions they get. And the privilege of the unlabeled becomes even more visible when you look into the second type of people in this Museum of Language, and those are the labelled. Those are people who in one way or another don't fit into the norm of the um, unlabeled. They are deemed to be somewhat different. The unlabeled want to understand the labelled, um, but not as an individual, but as a collective, as a group. Um, as a category. So they um, give them a label, a category, and this builds a glass cage. And then they give them also a definition, which is basically um, what the unlabeled find interesting about the labeled. And this is their definition. And the definition defines the space the spaciousness of this glass cage in the Museum of Language. So some people in this Museum of Language are um, uh, um, live in these glass cages and some of them don't fit their description, they don't fit their definition, so they run against those glass cage walls, but it causes pain, so they retrieve and try and move with a maximum distance to their glass cage walls, to their definition, and they um, degenerate into caricatures of themselves, into stereotypes. Others, however, however, keep walking against those glass cage walls. They start to create cracks, their foreheads start bleeding, and, and they're almost, they've always, almost made their way out and you catch a little bit of a breath of freedom when the inspection starts, because now the unlabeled want to understand why this labeled person doesn't fit their category, their definition. So they are being scrutinized, every inch of their body, their skin, their being, the texture of their skin, uh, their hair, the way they live and love, and all of the, uh, the, the entirety of their being is being analyzed and scrutinized and inspected. And those people allow this to happen because they live with the illusion that at the end of this, they will be, they will be granted freedom. But the, at the end of this inspection, you don't, you're not being granted freedom, but are introduced into a slightly larger glass cage. 
and some are happy in this little wider space that they've been granted to live in and others on their first day walk against those glass cage walls. So I think this analogy really helps to help us helps us to understand how language can suffocate us, how um, language if thought as a building um, is not designed for us all. And the question obviously then is, so how do we get to a language where, so this would answer your question that you, you posed earlier, um, how do we get to a language that is um, th that can encapsulate the um, beauty, the multifacetedness within a society? And so, so the question in the analogy then becomes, why is it that those rooms are locked? Because we do need, the, need those rooms. We need categories to navigate ourselves through the world, right? It, mm. We probably die of uh, uh, too many information uh, getting into our brain. This is what we do as humans. We see patterns. We try and create patterns. We try and categorize things that we see also to have um, a form of, space where we can have a mutual understanding. A beautiful example is colours, right? We do name colours and categorise them, but we also know that we can have very long debates around whether a certain colour is still green or already blue uh, or orange and already yellow. Um, so because these categories we, we use help us to talk about the green tree and the yellow sun, but these are just tools. So what turns these rooms and the Museum of Language into prisons, what turns them into cages, is the illusion of knowing, the illusion of absolutism, um, the, the absolutism that we are incentivized to live with, to pretend to know an entire group of people because we have a name and a definition, to know an entire world religion, an entire continent, um, uh, an entire group of people simply because they share the same sexual orientation. And, and this is what I found, one of the crucial, um, I would say, foundations of any form of oppression. And that is that we universalize certain perspectives and pretend that they are objective, universal, neutral, which then forces all the other, not only oppresses all the other um, uh, perspectives, but also forces them to um, use categories um, and and um, yeah, categories they want to abolish to explain why they are being uh, uh, marginalised. Mm. So if if in this museum of language. Um, there was, if there was no uh, absolutism, someone could enter a room and leave it, and no one would be captured in one of those rooms. You could, you could be a hijab-wearing woman, you could be a refugee, you could be this and that, and move through these because you are all of that, but none of those describe your entire being. Mm. This is what that racism does to us. Um, it robs us of our complexity, our our um, contradictions, our beauty, our multifacetedness, um, our individuality. A hundred percent. And I, as you were talking, but you've sort of answered it. I was going to say, um, you know, do you did you find that there were any uh, cultures who or where uh, the categories are 
less constrained than the ways they've been developed in European languages? Because obviously European languages kind of, I mean, I don't, I actually don't know if this is entirely true, but there's obviously Latin languages which have a common root. So there'll be at least a portion of European languages that have like a common root, but other languages will have completely different roots and maybe and and I know you reference some who look at the world very differently but did you find any wit where they didn't try and create sort of glass cases that maybe they were much more permeable walls or? Um, I think there are also examples in western languages um, but of the past so um, Thomas Bauer wrote a book on the loss of culture of ambiguity and he describes how 500 years ago um, you would have Christian theologians write about a heidnik. Do you use that word in English? Uh, heid, like um, people who, like from a Christian perspective, non-believers. What do you call them? Oh, um, heretics. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, in, in all you know, a long time ago, they would have called the, the 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 Christian world would have called people who didn't believe heretics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so they would talk about their traditions in an appreciative way. And from today's angle, be like, okay, how come that they would um, praise something that is in inherent contradiction to their beliefs? And you would see a more vivid culture of ambiguity where contradictory perspectives were uh, not in competition, but could exist alongside each other. And then he gives examples of, you know, the Golden Age in, in the south of Spain, uh, in Andalusia, where you have Christian, Muslim, Jewish scientists work and collaborate together, where you would then see a more active culture of ambiguity, where all of them, you know, do believe and they have their specific religions because they believe those are right, but they also live um, with the knowledge of their own limitedness and can appreciate um, contradictory perspectives because they um, would never claim to have the absolute truth, the absolute knowledge. And he links it to radicalization today uh, in many facets from Islamic radicalism, uh, Islamist radicalization to right-wing radicalization. He even links it to colonialism, uh, where uh, people felt legitimized to impose their truth onto others. And and he talks about, um, um, and what he does is to show that ambiguity is something we are able to cultivate but we're not incentivized to do so. I mean, you see this with beauty standards. You see this even with the food we consume. You would now travel around the world and the supermarkets will have the exact same food. The beauty, the complexity, the ambiguity, the, the multifacetedness of nature is being homogenized. And uh, so this is with aesthetics and fashion um, to consumption of food, um, to um, um, norms and ideas and ideologies. You see this everywhere. And he, he did a lot of work around this. And he also gave, gives an example from um, travelers in the Islamic, uh, in Islamic history, one of them being Ibn Khaldun, um, who 
Um, so he uses this as an example for ambiguity in language. He, those two travelers, one of them was traveling further away and some, another one was just traveling to, I think, in a city that was an hour or two away from his hometown. And both of them experience um, uh, Fremdheit, uh, what is the English word? They're being considered foreigners. So they, they experience foreignness and, and how they experience it is by arriving somewhere not being greeted and not being welcomed. And this is what causes them to feel foreign, not because they were dressed differently, not because any um, physical elements were different to those people around them, but because they were not welcomed. And then in one example, someone comes to this person and says, um, I, I watched you and I recognized that you were a foreigner. And again, this is based on not you know, watching him and see, oh, he walks differently, talks differently, he's dressed differently, but watching him and seeing that this person was not welcomed. And then this person asks, can I help you overcome this stage of foreignness? So it's a beautiful example where this word foreigner is not a prison. It's not a cage this person is being forced into. It is not something someone else says about this person because they perceive them as this and that. It is because they observe this person, see uh, how they're being treated, and then, and then also see this as a fluid state that can be overcome. It is not static. And to live a culture like this, we need to learn to understand our own limitedness. We need to create a culture of humility. And I know how absurd it might sound to advocate for humility in a culture where you're being incentivized to do the exact opposite, to pretend to know it all, to pretend to have seen it all, where you can, sorry, excuse my language, but where you bullshit your way up to the top, where women who take empowerment courses in business are being told to stand like this and talk like that and interrupt people and put their hands on someone's shoulder to express dominion and all of these things that are symptoms of lack of humility. And, and in that kind of um, society, in that kind of culture to advocate for humility might sound absurd because that means um, that we, that they take all while we are alone in our humility. And this is why I think it's important to react to these transgressions, to react to dominion, but also understand that to, to sustainably move and change into society where we don't just become the people who react to, where we can also be people who act towards, we need to create spaces wherein humility can be lived where you incentivize to live humility, understand your own limitedness. Um, and this is to me not subordination to something else. To me, it is empowerment. It is knowing what you know, but also being consciousness of the vast things, amount of things that are still yet to be discovered. And, and if to understand that this is true resistance to a culture of dominion over nature, over women, over 
um, uh, 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 racialized people, and so on and so on. Um, a culture where people live with the illusion of owning a piece of land, live with the illusion of owning a person, owning a country, um, being legitimized to exploit the other, to provide for another. Um, to, to get out of this system, we need to create an alternative. And to me, humility is part of this. It, it doesn't answer, give an answer to everything, but I think it's an element of it because it is also because the lack of humility is what legitimizes these forms of oppression as well, like many other factors do. Are you you you're on mute? Sorry, it's interesting that it's both the opposite of um, domination and the resistance to it. You know, it's like the root and it's like the the the, the end goal and the way combined. Um, and I and I think it is a really interesting uh, suggestion. I often think that when we look at the state, particularly of like the world ecologically, that the idea that we all need to live and people find this absurd. It's like, well, we've all got to live a little bit less lavish is the truth. We all have to like rein it in a bit. Uh, well, all of us, those of us who live in in what might be called the opulence of countries where we've always thought that everything would be on tap always. Um, and it's it's a it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell, as you say. Um, I think for the the green movement to tell people that you know you've got to do it for the planet, but it's a hard sell ethically and morally in a society where people um, believe that uh, you know uh, humility in many cases is perceived as a lack of assuredness, which we need in business and we need in well pretty much every sphere. Uh, we're told. Um, and uh, and is also perceived as uh, uh, unreliable, I think, in general, which I think is ironic, given that I share your view that actually the humble person who might be a bit more sit back and listen versus kind of advancing a level of surety that is probably relative, um, uh, the, the former seems more reassuring to me. But with that said, yeah, please. Just to touch on that. So what neoliberalism teaches us is that we're not interconnected, that we are. So individuality in that framework means um, dissociation from the context you are living in that make you uh, um, able to live, able to live the life you live. And what any justice movement from um, climate justice movement, social justice, et cetera, et cetera, what they all do is show you interconnectedness. And that, I think, instills humility in you because, you know, I'm interconnected. And for me, and it, and it doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to uh, take or uh, everyone should have the same amount of everything because we know from what, just watching and looking outside right now because there are trees but just watching nature things people need different uh, um, these creatures all need different things the the tree takes different things the 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 mushrooms take different things it is not to say you know we, we we're all the same we all need the same things it is to say um we are interconnected and what we take has a consequence. And if you don't watch the consequence, if you don't also understand that whatever you destroy by taking something away has an impact on everyone, including you, is, um, is living with the illusion of being 
an individual in within the neoliberal sense. So, um, and and I think it also doesn't lead to knowing less. It it leads to knowing more. So to use the example of, you know, it's in many thought traditions, predominantly also in Indian philosophy, you have this dark room and there's this huge elephant in this room and then people are invited in to explain what an elephant is. Some will say elephants are long, soft animals. Someone else will say they are thin and hairy animals. And someone else will say they are uh, leathery, heavy animals. All of these perspectives are right. But if one of them claimed to have the universal truth, one of them claimed to have the objective, neutral perspective onto things. We would not only uh, uh, not only would all these other perspectives be oppressed, we would also miss the opportunity to see what there is. So to me, humility would then be an opportunity to listen to all these other perspectives and contextualize them and then understand what there is. To give you an example from discussions on police violence, racist police violence, you would then have a public where, uh, you know, to sort of boil it down to two perspectives. Yeah, one perspective would be, oh, the police is an institution that provides safety and security. And someone else would say, oh, no, it's the opposite. It's an institution that causes harm, racism, death, etc. So right now, unfortunately, the public what you have is those two perspectives debating and trying to win the argument and win the audience sympathy. But what what, re what should really happen is that these two perspectives who are contradictory but simultaneously true to be contextualized. And then you would have a debate around an institution that is un that does not provide peace and security for all. One, is it able to do so? Two, how? Three are the alternative ways of providing peace and security for all. We don't, we can't even have those discussions because we're stuck at the level of who speaks the truth, whose perspective do we universalize, whose perspective do we maintain because it's an act of dominion. Most of our public debates are not about what is actually true. It is not about to, uh, to get in, to get a great understanding of what there is to be able to solve them. Most of our public discourses are a battle over dominion, over through whose eyes do we watch the world? And and I think that the answer to that is, is that there are some groups whose vision of the world continues to dominate and that any challenge to that is perceived not as a, an, an attempt to enhance our society by widening your perspective saying look you you what you see is what you see but there's more yes. there's more and if you fully see me you'll learn more and if I fully see you <laughs> you know but I probably already see you because everything about the society tells me your perspective you just don't have access to mine but at the moment it seems to me that that's where white supremacy becomes its hardest is when it's asked to relinquish the domination that says that it is the only valid way and that it is the way um and so i was actually going to ask you whether you think that the unlabeled like 
do you see a connection between the unlabeled and whiteness? Because when you were saying, I was thinking, you know, whiteness is that world where you never have to define, you never have to label, you just exist. And your own existence is never really questioned or studied or, you know, thrown back at you in a completely deformed way when you go, oh, my God, that's what you think. But, you know. Um, yeah, and this is interesting because um when I first presented this analogy at a conference, it was a law conference, um, something really interesting happened. So I was on a panel and one of my panelists, uh, she is a professor of law and she talked about the Anti-Discrimination Act in Germany and she said, old white men are the main profiteers of this uh, law, uh, of this act, because um, if they are being discriminated against based on their age, they get relatively high compensations. And obviously the audience that caused some uproar, people were like deba debating why is it that, you know, exactly this group is profiting off so much of, of this um, anti-discrimination act. And then um, someone raised their arm, an old white man, and he expressed discomfort about the way people were talking about old white men. This led to even more heated debate in the audience. And to me, it was really interesting because something really, um, I would say, uh, revealing had happened in that moment. He was so used to being seen as an individual with a complex past, present and future with different talents and uh, flaws and mistakes, like, you know, just an individual who stood for himself. And all of a sudden, he experienced what it means to stand in front of someone and then there's a wall being pulled between you two, a glass cage wall. And all of a sudden you speak, but you're not being heard. You stand in front of a person, but they don't see you. They only see what they project onto your category. All of a sudden you are responsible for the actions of complete strangers and you have to answer for them. All of a sudden, instead of just being who you are and just doing whatever you were planning on doing, simply existing, simply being, you are occupied by trying to prove that you're not the negative attributions that they've associated with your category, for instance, being sexist, racist, etc. So that instead of just being, you have to prove all of the things you're not. And for the first time, maybe this person in that audience was experiencing what it means to suffocate in a glass cage, to be robbed of your individuality. And so this is also why I feel when we talk about old white men, you get these reactions because to some, it's the first time they're being labeled. Why also talking about whiteness, so shifting the attention to so because it's like looking back to those eyes we've been trained to look through the world at. And all of a sudden you look back at those eyes, you define those eyes, you show, you prove, you visualize the limitedness of those eyes. And this is why it sometimes causes uproar. This is why sometimes uh, you get these really harsh react reactions. And that doesn't mean that we should... Um, use those those categories because they are really helpful categories. It it just shows that um, that a lot of uh, resources are fed, like you said, supr white supremacy is being maintained by um, uh, investing resources into maintaining those as the set of eyes that define the world that we're looking at um, the world at. These are the eyes we look through 
at the world and movies, um, uh, knowledge production, uh, you know, at, um, institutes of higher education, um, um, culture, all of these are looking at the world through a limited lens. And what we need to learn is a culture where we can contextualize those perspectives, where a different do you use the term canon in literature? Yeah, of course. The yeah, the canons. Yeah, different canons. Yeah. So, you know, there are all these battles over canons as well, right? So uh, there's the Western canon. And the moment it's being labeled as Western, it's not universal anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and why is it, right? Why is it that, that this causes discomfort? Why is it that there's a lot being now invested into making them still maintain their universality? Um, and and I think this is where these shifts are happening. This is what also, you know, the, the language of the Potawatomi, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is part of this tribe, who learned this language as an adult, describes a situation where she's with her students and she asks them, do you love the earth? And they all describe how much they love the earth. And then she asks, does the earth love you back? Mm. And it causes discomfort. Definitely not. Because this question implies that you're being looked back at. Yeah. Not used to that. We're not yeah. used to that as humans. Uh, white people are not used to that. Uh, uh, rich people are not being used to that. Like all these um, uh, um, sort of hierarchies, uh, all these power plays of dominion, those who express dominion, who maintain dominion, are not being used to being looked back at. Mm. They need to train. I think um, the the interesting thing for me with the example of the the older white man, you know, speaking up in this conference, you know, I agree with everything you say. I I I I suppose part of me feels like I don't understand because I have had this response, obviously, in conversations on whiteness, where um, you know some white people will say, "Well, I feel really uncomfortable with you, you know, making generalizations about white people," and I say. I don't, you know, I'm racialized as white myself and I don't really take umbrage when somebody says white people are like this. Not because I think I'm beyond that. Not because I don't think that that doesn't apply to me, by the way. I'm not like, oh, I'm the exception, so I'm fine. No, because I'm fully aware that if a lot of people are saying something, who the hell am I <laughs> to be like, you're wrong <laughs> or like, it's not true. At a certain point, you have to be like, okay, well, a lot of people are saying this is a thing. So, you know, I probably should just take it on the chin and try not to be that thing as much as I possibly can and be receptive when people tell me. But I I also, um, uh, from the other perspective, I guess, of having been put in a category for many years and still feeling like that when my Muslimness is uh rendered vi visible even in a conversation where suddenly it's like a revelation and now i belong to a category and now there's a set of assumptions placed upon me i am also just really aware of not wanting to put anyone in that case you know of, of wanting to say the, the the case the case is too narrow for anyone and i'm i'm not trying to you know i'm not trying to do to you what you you know what's been done to other people i guess um, this discomfort you express is beautiful and also, like you said, needs to be put into perspective because other people live through this discomfort, not 
for 15 minutes during a conference in a room of, I don't know, 300 people, but this is their entire life. Of course. From from the moment they were born to the moment they die, and even after death, they're being robbed of their individuality, their complexity, um, their, their perspective. And, um, but like you said in your second point, um, I don't want to do onto someone else what they've done to me. So this is why, you know, I think anger, um, uh, uh, um, even hate, all of these things have their place in reaction to the atrocities done. But I also think that we need to seek ways that sort of um, find carve way out of this dynamic where we're more than just a reaction to what's been done to us. Um, you know, hitting back is legitimate when you when when you're being hit at. Uh, the question, so so to me, it's not to say, oh, you know, turn the other cheek or anything like that. And I don't want to d- diminish anyone who ha- is legitimately angry, mad, and 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 uh, um, uh, full of uh, anger, but. Um, I think we should also invest resources into tapping in the darkness of a future that could allow us to live closer to our ideals. Mm. And this is where I would want to invest more resources in, uh, not to delegitimize the deconstruction of reality or the reaction to the necessary reaction to what there is, to, to be able to live. I mean, oftentimes these reactions are not just, oh, you know, out of, out of, born out of uh, boredom, but born out of the, the, the necessity to breathe, the necessity to live. Um, those are, have turned, unfortunately, into essentials to, to, to make sure you can exist, you're allowed to exist, right? you have to fight back to create a, a, a millimeter of space for you to breathe. But uh, as as society as a whole, we should we also need to invest into what we want to be and not just into what we don't want to be. Yeah, agreed. Well, on that note, <laughs> um, I want to take you to our quick fire round, if I may. So it's quick fire questions and quick fire answers. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? My definition of whiteness. Um, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but uh, uh, yeah, um, it, it's looking uh, 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 to me is what the definition of whiteness is looking in uh, back onto the eyes we've been taught to look at the world through. What is the root of racism? Again, repeating myself, but lack of humility. One of the roots, I would say, is lack of humility. Uh, the, the illusion of owning an entire group of people by giving them a name, by analysing them, by discovering them, mm. like we do with uh, insects and trees and uh, plants and continents. What is the opposite of whiteness? The beauty of the world. <laughs> is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view and is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I think it is desirable, but we won't go there. We won't be able to go there if we don't go through the pain that 
that a world constructed around fictional races has caused. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kubra. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts in this beautiful book with us. Um, if people want to connect with your work, your ideas, where should they go? Uh, they can read the book and uh, I would say social media, but I don't use it as much as I used to. So um, engaging in person at events would be the most beautiful way of connecting. <laughs> Love that. Well, look, that leads me to say once again, thank you for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.